Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome back Kevin Griffin, the author of Living Kindness, Meta Practice for the Whole of Our Lives. Kevin is a longtime Buddhist practitioner, author, teacher, and leader in the mindful recovery movement. He is also the author of One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the 12 Steps Daily Reflections, and many others. You can learn more about Kevin's work and background at kevingriffin.net. In the conversation, Kevin and I discuss the Four Noble Truths, how to think about suffering, the wisdom of listening, the art of contemplation, integrating wisdom into daily life, and much more. I always enjoy connecting with Kevin. He has a great deal of wisdom to share. And his book, Living Kindness, is available for pre-order now. I highly recommend it. So without any further delay, please welcome back the wise and gracious Kevin Griffin. Kevin, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Uh, it's a pleasure. As I was just mentioning before we hit record, grateful to to connect again. And I'm looking forward to talking on what I've seen referred to as three wisdom tools, but essentially listening, contemplation or reflection, and meditation. But before we get into those, I wanted to maybe spend some time and broadly talk about the topic of suffering. I'm a reader of a Daily Reflections book that you have, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and you have a few entries in there on the Four Noble Truths that I wanted to talk about, and I have a couple notes. So maybe to begin, for the listeners not familiar with the Buddha's First Noble Truths, you know, what is it and why, how is it interpreted and things like that? Yeah, well, the first noble truth, you know, I hesitate to just say what the first noble truth is without giving the other three, at least <laughs> yeah. briefly, but the first noble truth is the truth that there is suffering in the world and then in, in our lives, and the Buddha sort of then kind of lists all the ways that we suffer, just, you know, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. Very cheerful, you know. And that, but where he really hits it is when he says, "Not having what you want is suffering, and having what you don't want is suffering." And I think most people can kind of relate to that idea. It's like, oh, things aren't the way I want them to be. This is unpleasant. And so much of the time, we are in that kind of state of just things aren't quite right. What can I do to make myself feel better? Whether it's go have a snack, get a, take a nap, have a cup of coffee, go call a friend. You know, we're always trying to fix ourselves in a way. But uh, briefly, just to say, so that people don't get the idea, that's the whole of the Buddhist teaching. Second noble truth is the cause of suffering, which is our essentially what I'm describing, like our, our striving to, to change things and always be in this state of dissatisfaction. The third noble truth is the possibility of getting out of that cycle. And then the fourth noble truth is the way to break that cycle of suffering. So there is a solution. And could you speak a little bit about maybe the different interpretations of suffering, that word dukkha, and maybe some other meanings or how someone might look at it? Yeah. Well, one of the best, I think, translations, because as you say, dukkha is this ancient Pali word, an ancient Indian language called Pali, that we translate as suffering. But there are many other translations, including stress. But I think the best one is probably unsatisfactoriness. So things are not satisfying. There's a lack of satisfaction that's kind of ever-present. And of course, people then will want to argue with you about that, which fine. 
no, I feel satisfaction, you know. Okay, but the key is to understand that satisfaction is temporary. And so because it's temporary, we can't call it complete satisfaction. It's always just here for a moment. That's pleasant. That's lovely. But it doesn't really solve the problem. So so dukkha is, it can range from the very simplest sort of, you know, itch that you're scratching on your neck, as I'm doing in demonstration for you, to facing your own death. So it can be very subtle, or it can be very gross. And, and so it kind of covers that spectrum. You write in, in one of your entries in your daily reader that once the Buddha lays down the truth of suffering, he says that its cause, the second noble truth, is craving. Yeah. And then you talk about how it literally means thirst. What are some common examples of our craving and clinging that maybe somebody listening isn't quite familiar with? Yeah, there's a great example of how this works. If you decide that you're not going to be take a day and not be controlled by your craving, when you wake up in the morning, you just lie there and you go, I'm just going to lie here. I'm not going to do anything. And then after a little while, you're like, I got to go to the bathroom. So there's this discomfort. Uh, so craving takes two forms. It's craving for pleasure, but it's also the craving to get rid of pain. So in that moment, it's a craving to get rid of this discomfort. Okay. You go to the bathroom. You're like, okay, I'm okay now. You go back to bed. I'm just going to lie here, do nothing today. Kind of getting hungry. You know, we go eat, you know. All right. Well, you know, now that I'm up, I might as well enjoy my day. And so we just start to see that just moment by moment, what do I have to do after I get up? Well, I probably have to go to work. Do I want to go to work? May, it depends on my job and my relationship to my boss and my job. You know, maybe it's pleasant. Maybe I can't wait to get to work. Maybe I want to get away from the house. You know, it, it's just this restlessness, you know, that's just sort of, it just pursues us is the t word I'm trying to think of. It's like we're being pursued all the time by some craving. And, you know, it definitely takes, I think talking about this can be useful, but one of the reasons why we practice meditation is to see this operating in real time rather than thinking, oh yeah, I know what they mean, you know, but rather we sit down and we meditate and we start to watch our mind and we start to see this manifestation of craving showing up in the mind. And that's where it's really driven home for us. It's one of the why, reasons why meditation is so important in the Buddhist tradition, because to truly get the transformative insight that the Buddha talks about, we have to see it and experience it for ourselves. I was really struck by... Something I read in, in the entry on the first noble truth, which was a while ago and it stuck with me a little bit. And you use the word immaturity. <laughs> <laughs> you say, in some sense, addiction is a kind of immaturity, a childish expectation that nothing should ever go wrong, that pain and difficulties in life are a mistake. And Maturity is not a word that I hear often right. in culture. I just really rarely hear it. You know, what does maturity mean to you? And does it differ from wisdom? Mm -hmm. Or how does it maybe connect? Yeah. Well, I have to admit that I surprised myself when I had that thought. <laughs> uh, you know, but it really rang true for me. And it partly goes back to it partly goes back to the realization that for many addicts, we start on our path of addiction as t teenagers or adolescents when we aren't mature, and that our addiction, you know, our constant use of some addictive substance or behavior retards our emotional growth. And so thus immaturity, you know, in that way. And that's why the description 
of what I'm describing as immature is very much like a teenager or an adolescent expecting to get out everything they want. And so I think it's a really good question. Maturity and wisdom, uh, what's the relationship? Well, this is actually a very traditional way of viewing wisdom as the wisdom of the elder, which is another term for maturity, you know. So when I'm talking about maturity, I'm talking about emotional growth by and large, but it also manifests as behavior, you know, as basically responsible behavior, right? And, you know, even as I say that, I think, well, that sounds kind of boring, (laughs) but you know, there's a funny, there's a funny billboard up that I've been seeing down Route 880 outside in Oakland recently. And it's very odd. It says, a nine to five job isn't corny. <laughs> and then it says something like a nine to five job is, you know, is life or it's good or what I forget. I don't even know what the tagline is. But the first line I really relate to because when I was in my addiction, that was how I thought, oh, a nine-to-five job, how corny. Like, I'm a musician, you know, I'm living a cool life. I'm, you know, and so maturity, you know, is kind of corny, you know, <laughs> in a way, <laughs> as I'm describing it. And But wisdom obviously has other components because you, one of the things that also became clear to me as I've reflected on these questions is that you can get older and you can be responsible, you know, and so-called mature without developing wisdom. And when that happens, you, you know, you can either become a wise elder or a bitter old person. Mm-hmm. And a bitter old person who is someone who doesn't develop wisdom over time. Because over time, you, you either... <laughs> I'll make this statement. I don't know if it's true, but... <laughs> I think you either develop wisdom or you become embittered or so wounded that, you know, you're just unhappy because life is difficult and aging is difficult and losing your friends and watching the world, all of that is painful. And wisdom is the only thing that allows us to hold all of that without becoming overwhelmed. And without, as I say, becoming bitter and angry or cynical and all of that, we have to be able to see, oh, this is, we have to see the bigger picture, which is, you know, something that, as you know, the wisdom traditions offer us that bigger picture of reality and of life. Yeah. It's interesting, as you were talking about earlier, like this idea of life is suffering or you know, un, unpleasant in, we don't always notice it, or maybe not everyone notices that I'm, I still have young kids and from a maturity thing, <laughs> as you write about this, you know, there's maybe a childish expectation of certain things and it can be really visible. You can see it. They they're, will let you know when this comes about. But I sometimes wonder, you know, don't, isn't that same thing happening in us maybe more times than we realize? Maybe it's not a visible something that we talk about, but this thing of when something doesn't go our way, when we don't get necessarily what we want, there is some sort of dissatisfaction at some certain level that is happening. Even if we are mature or wise. <laughs> yeah. A- absolutely. That's, you know, the, uh, so, so the, our conditioning, our deep conditioning is to be in this state of craving. You know, it's very instinctual. It's very much what keeps the human race persisting is craving. And so, we're always going to live with that, no matter how much spiritual work we do. And it's really about developing and strengthening the side of wisdom that can remember 
oh, what, wait, what am I doing to catch ourselves? So to me, there's always this, the two sides of our heart mind, you know, the, the craving or the, which includes, as I say, the aversive, you know, that if we want to call it immature for our purposes. And then there's the wise side. And they're in a, I don't want to say they're in a conflict exactly, but there is a kind of tension between them. And, you know, the practical work of spiritual practice is the maintenance and the attempt to cultivate and maintain these positive states and these this positive viewpoint. And when I say positive, I don't mean like everything's great. I mean like coming from a constructive side and a wise view. So thus I meditate every day, you know, and I, you know, I reflect on the aspects of wisdom, you know, impermanence, self you know, self-centeredness and dukkha and suffering. You know, I kind of remind myself, oh, that's what's going on. And then I forget and I go into a state of agitation and, you know, and then and I remember and I pull myself out. You know, when you look at, you know, I'm, I have relationships with a couple of senior monastics, people who have been Buddhist monks for 40 years or more. And they're just human beings, you know. They deal with all this stuff themselves. And they're like full-time committed to this. They're not raising kids. They're not paying a mortgage. They follow a very rigorous lifestyle that's meant to keep them awake. It's meant to keep them out of that grasping state. And yet, they all fall, fall into it in many moments. And they have to many moments of each day that they have to bring themselves out of in the same way each of us. It's so interesting. And as you're talking about like your practice and the practice of meditation, you write something that I, I think is so important when you're talking about the third noble truth. And I don't exactly know why, but you write that like step two, the third noble truth is fundamentally about belief or faith, even though Buddhism doesn't seem to be a faith-based religion. It requires some faith or trust to engage fully. That seems to be such an important thing to realize. The fact that, you know, some sort of view and belief of faith or a trust in a particular practice, we've spoke about it on a few different episodes of not just if it's Buddhism, but if it's some other philosophical or spiritual path, some particular practice, there has to be some sort of view and belief that it's going to lead you to some sort of, I, yeah, I don't even know how to ask it, but why is that an important realization? So... Every action we take is based on a belief that something is going to happen as a result of that action. And so, <laughs> when we take on actions that don't have immediate benefits or immediate consequences, and that may even be difficult and challenging, we need even a stronger belief to carry us through because to go and sit in the corner of my room over here where I meditate for 45 minutes and do nothing except be with my own mind, which is not always pleasant. I have to have some motivation in there. It's, it doesn't look like something, it, at least initially, it doesn't look like or feel like something useful or pleasant. So I have to have both a somewhat of an intellectual appreciation, you know, and many people, of course, are brought to, brought to meditation first through ideas, through, you know, someone says, oh, this will do this for you. But, and then I have to have some experiential, you know, pr 
well, I'm going to say redundancy, experience. I have to have some experience that gives me, that reinforces that intellectual idea. So the belief, if it's just intellectual, it's going to not going to carry me very far. So I sit down and I meditate, and at first nothing's happening, and then things start to happen. And then I start to think, oh, yeah, maybe this is true. And then I read some more and I say, and I hear, oh, you know, if you keep doing this, then these other things will happen. I'm like, well, that hasn't happened for me yet, but something did happen. So maybe maybe they're right that if I stick with it some more, the next thing will happen. And so in Buddhism, this is kind of how we build faith. It's not seen as something where we swallow the whole belief system whole but rather that we do it little by little and kind of build our faith on experience. You know, definitely, you know, a a proven faith, not just something that's always out there. Like God is going, you know, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Just keep being good. You're like, okay, but are you sure? I may have to come back to that as we get into listening, contemplation, and meditation And I guess to start, I'm curious, sometimes I wonder, say someone listening or anyone out there in the world that maybe downloads a meditation app and picks up the practice of meditation without the Dharma talk, the reading, or, you know, the contemplation or reflection Mm. Any concerns about that? How do these build together into some sort of system? They seem to all be really important. Yeah, that's a good question because I think it is important to have some understanding of the system, understanding of the process. It's not, meditation isn't magical. It can as a standalone practice, it can have some benefits, but I would say that most people, the ordinary person, is not going to kind of have the insights that the Buddha had just by meditating, you know. And in fact, that's not wasn't the case for the Buddha either. He had teachers and a whole tradition that he was coming out of. So there's, you know, the Buddhist path traditionally does not start with meditation. And that's a very Western approach, actually, to Buddhism. A lot of people start their interest in Buddhism in the West with meditation. The traditional path, as the Buddha lays it out, is starting with generosity and morality, And he sees those as foundational to developing any kind of meditation because if you, well, first of all, generosity is about learning how to let go. So there's a nice kind of connection there. Morality then lays the foundation for us to be peaceful. You know, when you're stealing killing, you know, harming people, lying to people. Internally, you're agitated. I mean, we all know that. It's like you, as much as somebody appears to get away with some crime or some behavior, if you could look into their heart, you would know that there was no peace there. I'm curious to ask a Dharma talk. You know, you're you're listening to someone speak about some of these Buddhist teachings. I heard once that, you know, that even listening to a Dharma talk, you could also get a, a particular insight, like like you were, you know, in sitting in, in meditation. In your experience, has there ever been you know, any Dharma talks that you've listened to that really unlocked an insight for you or something that, you know, influenced you in a, in a deep way? One of my teachers a long time ago, Christopher Titmus, 
I was on a retreat, and he gave it during his Dharma talk. He said, or maybe right at the beginning of the Dharma talk, most of the people at the time of the Buddha got enlightened by listening to the Buddha, not when they were meditating. And he was saying, so listen carefully when you're hearing a Dharma talk. And it's one of the things I point out to people. My first, my first Buddhist teacher used to say, if you're going to read a Dharma book, read it after you meditate, not before. Because I thought, oh, I want to read this meditation book before I meditate and then close the book up really quick and do what it's saying. But the point is that our meditation prepares us to hear the Dharma. Mm. So there's a vital interplay here, an interaction between our meditation and our listening. The meditation creates the mind state that is receptive and open to hearing the truth. So that's, you know, one piece of this. If your mind isn't prepared, the most brilliant Dharma words can come out of somebody's mouth and they won't have any impact on you. I mean, just think about walking up to, you know, a stranger on the street and saying, you know, everything is impermanent. And they'd be like, yeah, well, yeah, so what? Like, who cares? And they'll walk away. Well, that, it was virtually that statement that brought enlightenment to Sariputta, the one of the Buddha's first disciples, just hearing that teaching. So, I mean, it's we all have this experience of sometimes we're in the right mood to hear something, just to put it in the simplest terms, and sometimes we aren't. So the mind state is so important. In the listening itself is not enough. It's the mind state in which we are listening. Now, I've had people say to me, Boy, your Dharma talk gave me so much insight. And what I say to people is, you have to, I didn't give you the insight. (laughs) Your mind and your spiritual development were prepared to take that step. Like, yeah, you hadn't quite had that insight, but you were ready to take that next step and to get to receive that insight. You were ready to hear that wisdom. Another person who was not ready wouldn't get any insight out of it. Mm. So this is the kind of critical part between in in your three elements of wisdom, listening and meditation. You know, the meditation lays the foundation for the listening. So how about you listen to a particular Dharma talk Take the topic, maybe impermanence. Now, and you want to contemplate deeply or reflect on this particular talk that you heard. I guess my question is something along the lines of, how do you differentiate contemplation from meditation and I may have some follow-up questions yeah. <laughs> after after that. Yeah, I actually want to go back, and I'll answer this, but I want to go back and say a little bit more about what I was saying before, which okay. is that the quality of the speaker <laughs> is also part of the enlightenment formula there. And, and you know, the... And it's not so much because I've heard Dharma talks that like checked all the boxes, like, oh, you've, you've got all the wisdom and everything in there. And they just fell flat on me because it didn't feel as if the person, there's something called transmission. I'm sure you're familiar with this term that someone transmits wisdom. So there is a certain energy that people who are awake Actually, there's energy that everybody transmits. It's just that when the more awake somebody is, the more they transmit awakened energy. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the formula, not just the listener and the speaker both have to be prepared. So th- so this question 
about contemplation versus meditation, I'll throw in another word, reflection, a a critical idea. So to start with, the word meditation is, again, a kind of Western word, and we kind of have our own idea of what it means. This sort of idea that we're just going to try to stop thinking. And Indeed, many Western meditation teachers mainly focus on that because most of our students think too much and can't get to the point of a clear contemplation or reflection because their mind is too busy. So if I say to somebody, oh, just sit down and reflect on impermanence, they're going to space out. They're not going to really be doing a skillful or productive reflection. And so we train people primarily in Buddhist circles, at least, in just calming the mind and developing concentration. But that is not by any means the whole of the meditative process. So I actually was looking at this word contemplation recently because it's a key word in the suttas, and I've been working with the sutta on mindfulness of breathing, and the wor- and throughout the sutta, the Buddha says we should contemplate various things, contemplating impermanence, contemplating cessation. And I always thought of contemplation as a kind of intentional thinking, and I believe that's the way I believe that's the way it's often defined, but I found that the Buddhist teachers, because I've been, as I've been studying the sutta, I've been reading some books about it. The various Buddhist teachers say that what the Buddha is saying is not to think about impermanence, but to observe it closely. Mm. So then I went and I looked up contemplation in the, the dictionary, and indeed that is actually the main definition of contemplation. I think there's, you know, as with, you know, any serious dictionary, there's multiple definitions, but to observe closely is very different to me than what I would call reflection. So reflection is I'm going to think about impermanence, but in a very intentional way, like I'm going to think about, oh, yeah, I'm like one reflection I'll do sometimes on on aging, I'll just think about the different parts of my body and the way they're deteriorating. You know, it's a very happy, <laughs> joyful thing. <laughs> but no, it's really interesting to realize, oh yeah, my hearing yeah. is getting bad. My eyesight, I wear glasses. My skin is getting wrinkled. You know, and you just kind of can go through your body. Oh, my knees, you know, they hurt a lot. My back hurts a lot. And it's like, oh, that's a reflection on the impermanence of my body. And it's a kind of careful, thoughtful way of reflecting. Close Contemplation, closely observing, though, is more like being aware of how the breath is constantly moving and that each breath begins and each breath ends. So each breath has a life cycle it's impermanent and that i can as i'm sitting and meditating i can feel my body more than just breathing i can feel you know the touch sensation around the body i and it's there's a constant flux a constant motion it's it, i don't the body's not moving in a visible way, but you can feel the energy of the body. You, I, could, I would say the nervous system, and you can feel, oh yeah, that's it's constantly changing. There's nothing stable in my body. And then if I just sit and listen, I'll notice, oh, there are sounds, and those are constantly changing. And so that's, I'm coming to understand that contemplation is more like that, closely observing, with the goal being ultimately, that we see that there's nothing to hold on to. Because Mm -hmm. if we fully absorb the reality 
of everything being in a constant state of change, a constant state of flux, then it's completely illogical to try to hold on to anything. And at some point, one of the ways that it is said that people have a breakthrough into enlightenment, there's a kind of, well, they call it a breakthrough. It's a break, right? It's like, oh, my understanding of reality is wrong. Now I see reality differently because my understanding of reality is, oh, there's a table here, there's a computer, there's a, my body is here, it's, everything is just solid stuff. With the realization, as we know, this is true on the level of, on the atomic level, with the realization that's all an illusion, when we totally see that, there's a letting go and a freedom that comes with that because... <laughs> Going back to dukkha and suffering, where does it come from? It comes from our grasping and our clinging and our trying to, in some fundamental way, our suffering comes from trying to keep things solid. And and we have this, so we live in this illusion of solidity, which never kind of, it, yeah, it kind of works, but, you know, it, ultimately, it doesn't. So when we can finally let go of that illusion, it's like coming, to me, it's like coming into flow with reality. Like, oh, I'm not, you know, even though there's that famous line against the stream, that Buddhism is against the stream, that's talking about it's against the stream of instinct and culture of grasping. But in another way, enlightenment is about being with the stream and that our ordinary way of living is fighting against the current. Like, oh, well, I don't care if things are impermanent. I'm going to make them. I'm going to hold on to them anyway. It's like, oh, just let go. You know? it's, I think that's really helpful for the definitely for myself and for the listeners. I want to ask something about, you know, the Buddha many other wise people come to these realizations of what it's like. You were just talking about this flow and there's these metaphors or analogies, like maybe whether it's impermanence, it's like a dew drop on a leaf. Mm -hmm. Marcus Aurelius writes about, you know, life is like a river. Once something goes in, it's just quickly swept by. But it seems like it would be like from a contemplation thing, this observing of, you know, is there some benefit of coming to some sort of analogy or metaphor of our own of, you know, what is this like? What is this experience like over simply, you know, reading the metaphor that, that maybe someone else came to realize? No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. We, this needs to be very personal. It's the ultimate personal thing, which is also completely impersonal. But it has to be experiential. And when it's experienced, then we do get our own sense of it and our own understanding of it. And that's why you hear the different analogies that people give are the expressions of their own experience of this. So... As I was, you know, when I started to practice, and really this continues, many teachers will talk about notice, noticing the beginning of things and their lifespan and then the end of things, and especially noticing the end moments to become more aware of impermanence. That, pra that way of looking has never really clicked for me my experience of impermanence is much more of a constant flow. That when I meditate and I feel into my experience of impermanence, it's the way I describe it now is that the mind and body are a field of energy. It feels like a field of energy, which expresses to me the movement of it, the constant movement within that experience of mind and body. So that's my image, a field of energy. I see this like 
kind of ball of, you know, sparkling light and movement that is called Kevin, you know, (laughs) but there's nothing solid there. It's not like a beginning, middle and end because nothing really begins or ends. You know, that's an illusion. And I don't, that's one of the reasons I think I've always resisted that kind of approach because it makes no sense to me that things begin and end. If you're saying that everything is impermanent, then how can you say that there's a beginning of something? If does that make sense? I'm not sure if I, my, you know, I'm making a connection in my mind that I'm not sure I'm verbalizing it right. But if everything's just flowing, then where are you choosing as a beginning point, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Which is interesting just with your breath, you know, to notice. I mean, yes, your breath ends, but I mean, be interesting just to like examine it scientifically because it's like, yeah, the exhale, you know, it eventually fades out. But is there a point that you can actually say that's the end of it? You know, that it'd be very interesting. It's sort of like that idea of if, you know, if two objects are separated and one of them starts getting half, you know, you keep cutting in half the distance between them, they still never reach each other because it's like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Now I'm, no, I think I'm just making stuff up, but it's fun. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting and it connects with this wrap up question that I wanted to to ask you. So as you know, you've been on the show before. We generally finish up with something. How do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? And, and last time when you came on, you talked about the three key insights, insight into impermanence, into suffering and insight into non-self. And I'm curious as we've been talking about these and we've talked about impermanence and suffering, there is this, I notice it with myself and I'm sure with listeners that, that you get it, that you understand, you know, impermanence to, to use as an example. Mm-hmm. But how do we come to realize that there's deeper understanding that maybe we're not quite familiar with. I think about this analogy of, you know, if I go to a martial arts class and I've, you know, been going for a month, I don't quite have this realization that I get it. I understand that there's different levels, there's different understandings, even at the whatever degree black belt, there's still different understandings, even at that level. How can we maybe use some of the things that we've talked about of listening, contemplation, and meditation to come to the realization that there is more to maybe understand about impermanence or whatever the particular topic you want to put in there? Yeah. So I think what you're saying, I think what you're asking is, ultimately, how do we cultivate wisdom? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Like, how do we get this to be, like, really meaningful and it's not just something we read about, but something that we really live and that that really carries us in our lives? I think so. It definitely connects with that, for sure. So, to me, this is kind of, it somewhat goes back to the, what we were first talking about, maturity and that is it's a lifetime project you know it's not for most of us going to be like okay got it you know it's i figured it out now i see everything through this lens of wisdom i'm never disturbed by anything never caught in any craving so for me it's pretty simple that you know and the Eightfold Path really wraps it up, you know, that I have to have this foundation of morality and of kind of trying to be kind. And the 12 steps, you know, which are a big part of my work, are tied in with this. I mean, yesterday I got mad at 
my one of my friends who I was playing golf with, and I yelled at him. And less than five minutes later, I walked up and said, I'm sorry, I lost my temper. Now, that to me is like just central to this. Like, it's okay. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. But how quickly do I fix it? <laughs> That's like, and this is very practical, right? But that comes from like, I have to have a commitment to, you know, some basic commitments to kindness, to letting go, because it's easy to hold on to anger and it's easy to hold on to resentment. But if I understand that those things inevitably lead to continued suffering, I know that it's just not worth it, even if it hurts my ego. <laughs> and if I really understand, I realize, well, that ego is just some crap that my mind is inventing. And if I need to let go of that too, and that actually that's very freeing to be humble. And what happens when I apologize to my friend is that he appreciates it. And then there's love between us, right? So uh, this is very practical, you know, very simple. But this comes from a commitment that that involves, you know, daily meditation, having, you know, as I've said, working the 12 steps, working a spiritual program, working on my addiction, working on my character defects, trying to understand myself. What are my negative qualities that tend to come out? Oh, like my wife and I have worked some of this out after 25 years married, you know. I mean, we used to butt heads a lot. And we just don't do it anymore because we saw, oh, we're creating suffering. And it's both, it's, we're both defensive. And, you know, it just was like we came to understand ourselves and each other in a way that we could let go. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is that it's something that you have to build over time. And it, it, this w- wisdom, living a life of wisdom, and I'm not set, putting myself up in ex- As an example of somebody who's living some great level of wisdom, I wouldn't yell at my friend on the golf course if I was that wise. But it takes time, you know, and and it takes coming back like, oh, yeah, I need to study. Like I go on retreats every year. I'm always I always have some Dharma that I'm studying. I do daily meditation practice. You know, my work, this work is my spiritual practice. So it's like really this commitment to living in this way and to following a path, to to looking honestly at yourself. So letting go and love having these as foundational principles. So, the, so there's no simple answer to your question except that we have to persist and stick with our path. Yeah. Let me ask a follow-up question. I... <sighs> I think it can be really inspiring, this idea of the lifelong, as you initially were talking about, it's a lifelong thing, but that could be taken one of two ways. Uh-huh. It's like, wow, this is a lifelong, it's, a, it's an infinite path. What a beautiful thing. But then it could also be perceived the opposite way. How do we perceive this infinite path as a as this you know beautiful and inspiring thing that we get to journey on it comes back to humility you know and letting go and that, and there's wisdom involved in this because if you believe that there's some magical transformation that's going to fix everything that you should get, you know, like you're not worthy unless you get some magical thing where you become this perfect person. You know, if you believe that, then you're, you know, you've got yourself trapped in this conflict with yourself, with reality. So there's this you know, this term in the 12 steps of rigorous honesty. And that's part of this, like, seeing like, okay, the truth is, I'm just not perfect. And I've never been perfect. And I don't know anybody who's perfect. And so maybe I need to let go of that idea of perfection. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's okay. You know, it's, 
again, goes back to what I was saying about as you get older, you can become bitter or you can become wise. And part of that, you know, the bitterness is, man, it's never the way I want it to be. You know, the wisdom is actually the same thing. It's never the way I want it to be. Hmm. Oh, what's my response to that? Is it frustration and anger or is it letting go? And it's a choice we make. We have to look within ourselves. What am I choosing right now? How am I choosing to to be with reality? Well, that's a beautiful way to, to wrap up, Kevin. I am super grateful for you coming on to take the time. As we were chatting about a, a little bit before we hit record, it's a real gift. I am so appreciative of people like yourself that come on. I think I started this a year and a half ago, and just really wanted to explore different wisdom traditions. And I appreciate you coming on and answering some rambling questions that, that I threw your way. Would you take a moment and share, you know, a little bit about some of your work in the world? If there's any books that you've written that maybe connect with what we've been chatting about today? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. I do have a new book coming out on December 27th. <laughs> Which is like I was like said to the publisher, really, you're bringing the book out two days after Christmas. It doesn't <laughs> seem like the best marketing plan, but hey, it's actually a re-release of my book, Living Kindness. It's going to be on Shambhala Publications, which is a great Buddhist publisher. So I'm very proud to that they that they picked up what I previously self-published, and so that's that book is about the applying the teachings of loving kindness and compassion in Buddhism. And, and so, and it gets into some of the traditional Buddhist teachings and tries to really bring them alive for our, you know, our lives as they are today. And yeah, I have, that'll be my sixth book. As you were talking, mentioning the one you were reading from today is my daily reflections book, which came out I'm not sure when, last year, during the pandemic. And I've sort of taken this line, this title, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and I'm starting to just use that as a sort of brand that I then put other different books out under. So there's a Buddhism and the Twelve Steps workbook, and there's a Buddhism and the Twelve Step daily reflections. But then my first book, One Breath at a Time, and then the subtitle is Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. That's my most popular book. But, I'm, you know, I'm out on the road again now on this weekend, I'll be heading to North Carolina to teach at Southern Dharma Retreat Center, which is something I do every year. And so, yeah, I'll be, if people just go to kevingriffin.net, they can see my schedule. And I, I do Zoom classes a couple times a week that are just drop-in classes people are welcome to come to. So, yeah, I'm still trying to keep it going. <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, I greatly appreciate your work in the world. We'll link everything everything discussed in the show notes so people can easily check it out. Kevin Griffin, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Matt, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.